Hello, and welcome to this, the second episode of our look into the deadly dynasty that ruled ancient Rome some 2,000 years ago. Last week, we concluded our examination of the death of Julius Caesar and the rise of Octavian. And this week, we move into the crazy days of the Emperor Caligula. For our Patreon supporters, we will have a bonus behind the episode available, in which I'll talk a little bit more about this case. More info on that at the end of the show. Stay tuned to hear about Wink, makers of great wine curated to your taste and delivered to your doorstep. And now, let's begin our look at the bizarre reign and bloody demise of Caligula. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings, and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. Arrayed in the armour of Alexander the Great, wrapped in a robe of royal purple and riding a white stallion, the Emperor Gaius Caesar Augustus Germanicus rode in triumph across a three-mile-long bridge made up of an armada of ships across the Gulf of Baiae in the region of Campania, southern Italy. Behind him, in a column of chariots, was a retinue of noblemen and foreign princes, followed by cavalry officers and then legionary soldiers, all of them dressed to the nines. Hundreds of ships had been requisitioned for this feat, bound together in a double row. Across the entire flotilla, a road of compressed dirt had been laid, so that the route was said to be as sturdy as any Roman road. Along the route, stopping-off points had been constructed, with fountains and tables laden with delicacies. The Emperor set out from the resort town of Baiae, and upon his arrival on the other side, he and his small army conducted a mock raid upon the town of Puteoli. Victory won, they rested for the night before heading back across the monstrous makeshift bridge. This time, Gaius, wearing a tunic embroidered with gold, rode in a chariot that was pulled by the most famous racehorses of the Roman circus. He stopped halfway, Everyone got very drunk, and Gaius had great sport pushing the highest nobleman of the Roman Senate into the water. Some drowned, while the rest laughed. And as darkness fell, a thousand torches were lit along the bridge, turning night into day. 
It was a wonder beyond wonders, a feat never before imagined. Only the greatest of men could have pulled off such a spectacle. Indeed, surely only a god could wrought so magnificent a work. This was a celebration like no other, to honour a man like no other. This was a monument to the glory of the great conqueror Caligula, as Gaius Caesar Augustus Germanicus is better known. It was more magnificent than any triumph that the Roman Senate could have voted him, for the Emperor was now so far above those mere nobles that their paltry gifts meant nothing, less than nothing, to his majesty. Behold, Caligula declared to the world which he ruled, I am greater than Alexander the Great, I am the master of all I survey, even the ocean itself submits beneath the hooves of my horses and the iron wheels of my chariot. As a little boy, Gaius joined his father on campaign against the German tribes on the northern border of the Roman Empire. His father, named Germanicus Julius Caesar, was a prominent member of the imperial family of Rome, the Julio-Claudians, which had been founded by Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Germanicus was an extremely popular man. A dashing figure of impeccable lineage, he was a successful military leader and a respected public official. He seemed to have it all, and he was the most likely heir to the second emperor, Tiberius. Germanicus and his wife Agrippina had six children. Their young kids were the darlings of the Roman people. Gaius was the third child, with two older brothers and three younger sisters. Agrippina would join her husband on military campaign, accompanied by their children. In the army camp, Agrippina used to dress little Gaius in a miniature version of a legionary's uniform. This greatly endeared the boy to the soldiers. Battle-hardened veterans of bloody campaigns, they would coo at the child like doting grandmothers. They even had a nickname for Gaius. They called him Caligula, which means little boots, after the teeny sandals that he wore which matched their own. The name stuck, though in time Caligula would come to resent it. As wonderfully as things seemed to be in the early days of his life, Germanicus and his family would go on to face a litany of terrible tragedies and brutal conspiracies. Germanicus died at the age of just 34, perhaps of disease, though many claimed he was poisoned on the orders of Tiberius, who saw the popular prince as a threat. The eldest son of Germanicus was banished from Rome to die in exile. Then his younger brother was imprisoned, dying of starvation after three years in a dungeon. And their mother, Agrippina, was also exiled, where she too was starved to death. In the year 33 AD, only Caligula, then aged 21, and his three sisters survived. Theirs was a precarious existence. As a teenager, Caligula had been brought to the island of Capri 
to live with his great-uncle and adoptive grandfather, Tiberius. The emperor had exiled himself to the island, located in the Bay of Naples, far from Rome, because Tiberius hated, hated the rotten politics of the city. Tiberius was a military man, who had won many victories in battle and had earned a reputation as a harsh commander not to be trifled with. He wasn't just a warrior, though. He was also a philosopher. Or he fancied himself as one. On Capri, he surrounded himself with erudite men, often Greek experts of oratory, logic, rhetoric and philosophy, as well as soothsayers and artists. The island was the emperor's sanctuary. He had no taste for the political games required of a ruler in Rome. His predecessor, Augustus, had been the consummate politician. He wielded supreme power as emperor, and yet he could play the part of a mere patrician, a nobleman, just like the other members of the senate. Except not quite just like them. While in fact Augustus reigned as a tyrant, on the surface he appeared to be an adherent and defender of republican forms of rule. This was a very successful strategy, in that it made everyone feel like, or at least convincingly pretend, that Rome was sticking to its roots as an ancient republic, governed by a collection of wise men of the noblest pedigree. Thus Augustus ruled Rome for over 40 years, and this was a time of relative social peace and stability across the empire, which was a nice change from the century of civil wars of the previous period. Tiberius could not pull off this charade, nor did he want to. He loathed the obsequiousness and false flattery of the Senate, whose membership was both jealous of their ancient rights and yet willing to debase themselves by grovelling to the emperor for wealth and privileges. Tiberius preferred to retreat to his own private kingdom, to indulge in his favourite activities, and governing, when necessary, through letters sent to Rome. He also had favourites to act as his de facto regents in the city. In a way, this peculiar form of government did work. The Roman Empire remained in a state of relative peace and stability throughout the 23 years of Tiberius's reign. But without the charade of equality between the Emperor and the Senate, which had been so expertly performed by Augustus, the elite in the city of Rome didn't quite know what to do with themselves. The nobility of the city descended into a self-destructive mire of double-crossing, entrapments, and accusations of treason, some real, some fabricated, all in a desperate bid to do in their rivals and win favour with the cold and distant emperor. But the more they did this, the more they alienated Tiberius, who showed them no mercy and treated them with the cruelty that they treated each other. Tiberius, though many miles from Rome, still feared for his safety. There were plots against the emperor, including by those closest to him, creating a sense of paranoia and fear on his supposed island paradise of Capri. For six years, as a teenager and a young man, Caligula lived in the court of Tiberius, 
in the belly of the beast, as it were. There were rumours that the emperor, by then an old man, indulged in all manner of perverted sexual practices on his secluded island, though this might just have been a scurrilous rumour spread by his opponents. The social conditions during the rule of Tiberius were, as one modern historian has put it, not exactly suited to fostering a sense of humanity. Rather, one had to have a strategy in order to survive. Many aristocrats, including those in Tiberius's inner circle, were utterly without scruples. Murders and executions were everyday occurrences. There was a huge target on Caligula's back. As a member of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, he had a strong claim to the throne upon the death of the aged Tiberius. And as the last surviving son of Germanicus, he would probably be very popular with the army and the people of Rome. Therefore, Caligula potentially stood in the way of other ambitious men, such as those who wanted to see the grandson of Tiberius, a lad named Gemellus, succeed to the throne in order that they might use the young man as their pawn. What was Caligula's strategy in this toxic environment? Well, firstly we must say that he was extraordinarily lucky. Many a scheme to survive and thrive in the latter days of Tiberius's reign ended up dashed on the rocks of either the emperor's whims or someone else's scheming. Caligula showed a skill and a maturity well beyond his years. The ancient historian Suetonius describes the methods that Caligula employed. Although at Capri every kind of wile was resorted to by those who tried to lure him or force him to utter complaints, he never gave them any satisfaction, ignoring the ruin of his kindred as if nothing at all had happened passing over his own ill-treatment with an incredible pretense of indifference, and so obsequious towards his grandfather and his household that it was said of him that no one had ever been a better slave or a worse master. So, it seems that Caligula was a very good performer, just like his ancestor Augustus had been. But as we shall see, Caligula turned out to be rather more of a comedian than an actor. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Wink is a subscription box that reimagines the traditional wine club. You start by taking a quick, fun quiz, and that helps the experts at Wink to get to know your preferences. They can then pick out recommendations that are tailored just for you. I've received so many really delicious wines over the last few months from Wink, and I can honestly recommend them to you. They even do wine in little cans, which is super convenient and extremely tasty. If you'd like to try Wink for yourself, then head over to wink.com. That's Wink with a C, W-I-N-C. If you use the code ASSASSINATIONS, then you'll receive a whopping 22 bucks off your first box. Now, back to the show. 
When Tiberius died in 37 AD, he left the succession undecided. Perhaps this was his final show of disdain for the shabby politics of the empire that he had ruled for over two decades. It was left to a man named Macro, who had been the regent acting on Tiberius's behalf in Rome for several years, to decide what would happen next. Macro formed an alliance with Caligula, through whom he hoped to secure his own position in Rome. He then strong-armed the Senate into declaring Caligula, aged just 24, as the new ruler. Gemellus, the grandson of Tiberius, was kept around as heir, to step in if something should befall Caligula. The people of Rome were jubilant at the arrival of a new emperor. The long absence of Tiberius had made things rather dull for the common people of the city. No emperor meant that for many years there hadn't been too much by way of games, feasts, triumphs, and all that good stuff. In addition, Caligula was the son of Germanicus, whose memory was still cherished by the Romans. The people felt very bad about the way the family had been treated under Tiberius, and there was a lot of genuine sympathy for Caligula and his sisters. On the road from Capri to Rome, and as he entered the city, throngs of well-wishers greeted him, calling out that he was their beloved, their sweetums, their little chicken. Caligula was young, handsome, and gregarious. Basically, everything Tiberius was not. The mood of the people towards the deceased emperor was summed up by the popular cry of Tiberius to the Tiber, i.e throw the old guy's bones into the river. A new era was begun. The energetic Caligula was going to make the city of Rome glorious again. He was going to be the people's emperor. And he did not disappoint. In his first months in power, Caligula spent an absolute fortune on celebrations. Hundreds of gladiators and thousands of wild beasts were slaughtered in the games. Chariot races were held day after day, mock battles were re-enacted, feasts were given, and a vast amount of money was given away, especially to the army. It seemed that Caligula could do no wrong. Not only could he throw a party, it looked like the new emperor could also do politics. One of his first steps was to deliver a speech to the senate flattering the nobility gathered there and promising to share power with them. He emphasised his intention to renew the relationship between the Emperor, the Senate, and the people of Rome. In effect, to go back to the charade of equality that Augustus had managed to pull off. Guided by Macro and another important Roman politician named Silanus, the new ruler was able to play the part of Princeps, or first amongst equals. It seemed that his acting skills were excellent in those days, deploying all the talents honed during his years on Capri surviving Tiberius. Nor was Caligula all show. Rather, he instituted a number of important reforms and infrastructure projects. It looked like Rome had got itself a good emperor. A new Germanicus. Someone who could unify, guide, and inspire the city and the empire. 
Things took a turn for the worse, however, when Caligula fell greatly ill in the eighth month of his reign. We don't know what afflicted him, but it seems to have been quite serious. So serious, in fact, that Macro and Silanus started to plan what to do in the event of his death. They had Gemellus as a spare, so they'd have to quickly put him on the throne to secure their own places at the top. Unfortunately for them, Caligula got better, and he got wind that his two top advisors had been plotting against him. Realising that he'd never be secure so long as Gemellus lived, he had the poor boy, aged just 17, killed, or rather, forced to commit suicide. Macro and Silanus were also bumped off. This was ruthless, but it was also par for the course in ancient Rome, and nobody would have expected the young emperor to have done anything different. Despite this dramatic turn, in other regards Caligula continued as before, introducing sensible and popular political and social policies. He instituted much-needed building works, long neglected by Tiberius, and he promoted men from the provinces to the equestrian rank, giving them prestige and thereby winning their loyalty. He also maintained his generosity to the urban plebs of Rome, who were an important counterweight to the nobility. Despite these signs of political skill, Caligula was lacking in one thing. He had not grown up in Rome, and therefore he lacked a nuanced understanding of how to interact with the nobility there. A lot had changed in the city during the absence of Tiberius. The aristocracy, and even the wealthiest knights, had built luxurious houses that eclipsed the size and ornamentation of the imperial palace, which was actually rather modest reflecting the pretense of Augustus to be a mere patrician rather than a potentate. As emperor, and as an ambitious young man of taste and culture, Caligula could not be outshone by the nobility. So he spent a vast fortune building a palace complex in Rome, as well as a grand country estate and an opulent pleasure boat for cruises along the Italian Riviera. Caligula was, even by the standards of the decadent nobility, extravagant and rather gauche. He threw sumptuous and gaudy banquets where food on golden plates and entirely covered with gold leaf was served, alongside jewel-encrusted chalices of fine wine mixed with a solution of vinegar in which valuable pearls had been dissolved. If all of this was meant to impress, well, it probably did. But it was also viewed as being a bit too much, like he was trying too hard. And it also put the nobility in a tough spot. Caligula had raised the bar, and now they had to try to keep up. The ancient historian Tacitus comments that at this time many a noble family of the oldest pedigree ruined themselves in the pursuit of luxury. The young emperor developed behaviours that were viewed with distaste and even derision by those around him. He did not show due respect to the etiquette of Roman high society, 
traditional seating arrangements indicating rank were not adhered to. His behaviour at public events, such as gladiatorial games and at the theatre, was viewed as uncouth, and he consorted with low-born people such as actors and charioteers. This not only offended the nobles' sensibilities, it also confused them. Without strict rules to govern behaviour in social situations, especially those in the presence of the emperor, the sole fount of real political power, the aristocracy didn't know, quite literally, where they stood. They would jostle to be next to Caligula at banquets and other events, and they were obliged to submissively indulge his odd behaviour in public, whilst privately mocking the emperor behind his back. This contributed to a foul mood in the city, in which the elite scrambled amongst itself to offer obviously phony compliments to the emperor, regardless of what he did. This was exactly the sort of unctuous aristocratic behaviour that Augustus had skillfully managed to control, that Tiberius had loathed and run away from, and that Caligula now faced as an inexperienced ruler. Another tragedy befell Caligula in the year 38. His beloved sister Drusilla died. She was his rock, they had supported each other during the better years when the family of Germanicus seemed cursed. They were friends and confidants, and, jealous people claimed, also lovers, though there is no source that we can rely on to indicate if that was really the case. It probably wasn't. Drusilla's husband was a man named Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. He was a favourite of Caligula, and after the fall of Macro and Silanus, became the emperor's closest male advisor. After Drusilla's death, however, Lepidus fell out of favour. This would come back to bite Caligula. In the early months of 39 AD, things in Rome dramatically changed. There was a high-level conspiracy against Caligula, the details of which are unclear, but which the emperor successfully put down, again with ruthlessness. Caligula went to the Senate House, where he condemned the aristocracy gathered there for their shameless opportunism, toadying, hypocrisy and scheming. In short, he called them out. He declared, more or less, that he was not going to play the part of princeps, especially when the nobility played their supporting roles so poorly. Without this suspension of disbelief, the acceptance of the obvious fiction of equality between Caligula and his fellow patricians, the entire system of Roman government fell apart. Nobody could really hide their distrust, disdain and dishonesty anymore. Only enmity remained, based on bitter political and material rivalry between them. Of course, as Caligula was the top man in Rome, commanding the armed forces, the senators still had to prostrate themselves. But with the mask slipped, their clawing professions of love for the emperor were all the more disgusting, and Caligula's disdain for their grotesque displays became all the more rude and vicious. It was only a matter of time before the final curtain would fall. Either Caligula would have to go, or the aristocracy would have to be ground into the dust. 
As in all good pantomimes, there was a horse. In this case, it was the favourite steed of Caligula, Incitatus. Famously, the emperor dressed the beast in fine cloth, fed it gold leaf food, and had its water served from a golden cup. The emperor may even have declared that he would make Incitatus a consul, the highest political office to which a Roman noble could aspire, short of becoming emperor. This might seem totally bonkers, and that's certainly how Caligula's opponents in the ancient histories depicted it. But was it really so crazy to send an obscenely pampered horse to the Senate? It looks like the Emperor was actually trying to make a good political point here. He was declaring three things, I think. Number one, that he was very, very rich, and far, far richer than the aristocracy, and therefore better than them. Number two, that he was very, very powerful, and could do whatever he liked. And number three, he viewed the consulship, once the highest office in Rome, now reduced to a mere bauble fought over by the senators, with nothing but contempt. Later in 39 AD, Caligula faced the greatest challenge to his rule to date. His former ally Lepidus, as well as his two surviving sisters, joined a plot to murder him. This profoundly upset and disturbed the young emperor. For someone who had been through one family trauma after another, this betrayal by his sisters must have cut Caligula to the bone. Lepidus and the other plotters were put to death, while his two sisters were sent into exile, an act of remarkable clemency, demonstrative of Caligula's abiding affection for them even after their betrayal. No one in Rome would have batted an eye if he had had his sisters put to death for the crime of treason. In 40 AD, Caligula started to, ahem, permit noblemen who came into his presence to worship him as a living godhead made manifest upon the earth. Men of the highest standing in the Senate, of venerable lineage, wealthy and usually of the utmost dignity, would abase themselves before Caligula, crawling around on the floor kissing his feet and veiling their eyes from the supposed brilliance of his divine presence. I'm not sure how seriously Caligula took any of this. It may have amused him to watch these so-called nobles making wretches of themselves, pretending to see a luminous presence around their god-emperor. Perhaps this was his ultimate payback to the senators who he knew hated him and plotted his demise. It could be that Caligula thought that by laying the nobility so low that they were actually on their knees in his presence, he would shatter their will and degrade them to the point that they could threaten him no longer. Maybe, just maybe, he started to believe the hype. Suetonius claims that Caligula would dress up as different gods to receive visitors at the palace. Sometimes he was Jupiter complete with a little golden beard stuck to his clean-shaven chin. Other times he appeared as Hercules, or Apollo, or Dionysus. He could even be a goddess if he saw fit. Venus, or one of the nymphs. It didn't seem to matter who or what he claimed to be, or how crazily he acted. 
the senators would still prostrate themselves on the floor to praise his holy name. I strongly suspect that, more than anything else, Caligula found all this sycophantic groveling to be terribly funny, which really does not speak highly of him or of anyone involved in what had degenerated into an exceedingly sordid farce. In January of AD 41, Gaius Caesar Augustus Germanicus was assassinated. Unlike the killing of his namesake, Gaius Julius Caesar, 85 years earlier, this was no public slaying of a tyrant by men professing loyalty to the ancient and sacred traditions of the Roman Republic. Caesar had been slain in the Senate House by men such as Brutus who could credibly lay claim to the title of tyrannicide. No, Caligula was cut down in private by men who had no meaningful loyalty to the dead letter of the Republic. This was not a slaying in the name of liberty, this was a change of personnel at the top of a de facto monarchy. It seems certain that the deed was carried out by the two men in charge of the Praetorian Guard, the military force permitted to be based in the city and charged with protecting the Emperor. The ancient historian Josephus claims that three people, two noblemen and one of the Praetorian commanders orchestrated the plot. This needed to be a small, tight-knit conspiracy because of the culture of fear and denunciation in the imperial court which made it likely that the plot, had it been any wider, would have been outed by some opportunistic senator. Caligula was a big fan of the theatre. He loved a good play, and he really got into the spirit of things. Sometimes during performances he would shout at the actors to replay a scene that he especially enjoyed, other times giving them notes on how to do it better. And, as we have heard, he also enjoyed the company of actors, who, while they could be rich and famous, were looked down upon by Roman high society. He was such a fan of the theatre that he had a new one built on the Palatine Hill with a private walkway leading from the imperial residence to the imperial box. Theatrical performances in honour of Augustus were to be held there from the 21st to the 24th of January. This was not an especially good opportunity for the assassins to strike, as the emperor would have been heavily guarded and surrounded by his closest confidants. Also, the theatre would be packed, and though Caligula was hated by the nobility, he may still have been popular with the common people, whose mood could be difficult to judge. Time, however, was running out for the conspirators. The emperor was due to depart for a visit to Alexandria, Egypt, where he was sure to receive all the honours and worship befitting a king and a god incarnate. On January 24th, Caligula entered the theatre, walked onto the stage and carried out an animal sacrifice in honour of the deified Augustus before taking his seat. Two plays were on offer that day, a pantomime and a tragedy. <laughs> I mean, come on. Perhaps Caligula grew bored, or maybe he had other business to attend to, but before the end of the programme he and his entourage left the theatre and walked back along the passageway to the palace. Upon a pretext of wishing to speak to the Emperor, the two Praetorian tribunes separated Caligula from the group and slew him with their swords. 
other plotters were there, it seems, though the ancient histories are unclear about the exact circumstances or number of attackers. There followed all the chaos that one would expect from the scene. Caligula's personal bodyguard, comprising German warriors who were fiercely loyal to him, went on the rampage, slaughtering innocent people in the theatre. No one seemed really sure what to do next. Caligula's uncle, Claudius, who had been with the Emperor in the theatre just moments before the assassination, ran away from the scene of the crime and was allegedly found by Praetorian soldiers in the palace, hiding behind a curtain. Perhaps by some secret plan, perhaps because he was the only person around who fit the bill, Claudius, who had to this point played only a very minor role in the Imperial family, was declared Emperor. The Praetorian Guard had thus, for the first time but certainly not the last, disposed of one Emperor and enthroned another. It is, of course, poetic that Caligula was killed in a theatre. He began his career as Rome's vibrant new ruler full of promise, playing the role of Princeps, made famous by Augustus, with surprising skill for one so young. But the show had gone off the rails, as Caligula found it harder and harder to act the part on the stage of vicious Roman politics. While his predecessor, Tiberius, had tried to escape the role of emperor by retreating to Capri and having other men stand in for him, Caligula's defence against the slings and arrows of the Roman nobility was to chew up the scenery, playing the part of emperor to the fullest, crudest, craziest, and sometimes most brutal degree. Assassination was the natural finale to the drama. Caligula has gone down in history as a madman, and given some of his behaviour, this seems not entirely unreasonable. But history, as they say, is written by the victors. Those who killed him and those who had suffered under his rule trashed Caligula in death as energetically as they had licked his sandals in life. I think that Caligula did start to lose the plot towards the end of his short, hectic reign. Given the circumstances, it would be quite understandable. More than anything else, however, I think he was a tragic figure, a young man inadequately equipped to deal with a near-impossible situation who turned the office of emperor into a sick parody of itself. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. Next week we will conclude our look at the Julio-Claudians by skipping forward to the reign of the Emperor Nero, the last ruler of the dynasty. Have you listened to our sister show, Fab Figmentals? Hosted by Lindsay Morse, producer of this show, Fab Figmentals is a storytelling podcast that explores the world of magical monsters, curious creatures, and beautiful beasts. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Check it out at fabfigmentals.com. This episode was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Lindsay Morse produces and edits the show. Our theme music was created by Graham Ronald. As I said at the top of the show, for our Patreon supporters we have a Behind the Episode, in which I'll talk about some of the achievements of Caligula's reign. You can gain access to this bonus episode and a trove of other Patreon-exclusive material by making a pledge through Patreon at patreon.com slash 
Assassinations podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, bye-bye.